Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. On a visit to her grandmother's house, journalist Maya Lynn Sugarman discovered a trove of screenplays written by her uncle Galen. She'd known him a bit as a young woman when he was living in a small apartment in Los Angeles, so she was shocked to learn that one of the screenplays was turned into a gangster movie starring Rob Lowe, and even more shocked to learn that it was based on her uncle's real-life experiences as a young gang member in Oakland's Chinatown. Maya's podcast, Magnificent Jerk, explores the shadows of family history, spotlights a slice of the Bay Area's past that few discuss, and searches for meaning in the gaps between fact and fiction. That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Maya Lynn Sugarman grew up in Oakland, and her family has deep roots here. Her grandma and mom and aunties and uncle used to live over by what's now the Sprouts off Broadway. Now, after UCLA, then stints at KPCC and the Washington Post, she's a journalist and producer and yogi. But there are a lot of things she didn't know about her family and their life in Oakland in the late 60s and early 70s. It was a different time, and many Asian-American immigrants lived in very difficult circumstances. After her mother and grandmother passed away, she decided to recover some of that family history, and it led her to explore her uncle's generally troubled and occasionally inspiring life. She joins us this morning to share the story of her documentary podcast, Magnificent Jerk. Welcome, Maya. Thanks so much for having me. So just tell us a little bit about your mom's side of the family. Like, how'd you think of them when you were growing up? Yeah, um... How did I think of them? I think they were a pretty spunky group. Um, my uh, my grandmother and grandfather um, came here to the United States in the 40s um, and had four children, my two aunts, my uncle, and my mom. Mm. Um, they grew up in West Oakland. And I think they, from how I understood it, they grew up in, I mean, essentially in poverty. My My grandfather, my mother's father, passed away when um, my mother was nine, my uncle mm. was seven. 
Um, and so suddenly my papa, my grandmother, had to raise all four children as a single mother. Wow. So I, you know, used to hear stories all the time about how difficult it was um, and how they really had no idea how my papa did it, how mm. she kept the family afloat. Yeah. Did you know your papa, your grandma? I did, yes. Um, she cooked for me all the time. Mm. Um, she made yams for me whenever I came back home to <laughs> Oakland, which is like my favorite dish that she made. Um, and we, it was tough because I, we did have a bit of a language barrier. She mm -hmm. understood English. Um, I don't understand Chinese, sadly. Mm -hmm. um, and I, in particular, I don't understand the dialect that um, our family speaks. Mm -hmm. um, so we would have to have conversations through a translator being my mom or my aunts. Mm. Um, and I tried as much as possible to kind of learn about her history. Um, but, you know, it always felt very spotty. Yeah. So what did you start to kind of dig into the rest of the family history, you know, the kind of stuff that, that people didn't just talk about day to day and the kind of basic stories of family life. Yeah. So I've been asking questions here and there, you know, when I felt like I could get the chance and inject them into <laughs> daily family conversations. Yeah. Um, but uh, this kind of the, the past that we uh, get to a magnificent jerk about my uncle, um, which is something my family never talked about I never knew about um, didn't really come to light for me until December 2020 when I came back home to Oakland um, because it was clear my papa didn't have much longer to live mm. and yeah when I came to see her my um, aunts just started sharing with me um, on on tape which is crazy uh, that there was a lot about my uncle Galen I didn't know mm. Um, and they mentioned that he was in a gang, that he maybe had like a drug problem and that he had gone to jail for attempted extortion. And none of these things I, I ever knew. It was very shocking wow. to me. Because you had actually met and lived with him, right? Yeah, I actually lived with him um, for a couple months uh, when I graduated from college while I was unemployed. He let me crash uh, in his North Hollywood apartment while I was trying to figure out my life, trying to get my first job as a photojournalist. Um, so I feel like I got to know him pretty well, but you know, it was very much like uncle things, you know, we'd watch TV together and like go to the donut shop and like, <laughs> you know, walk his friend's dog. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it kind of sounded like you felt like his life was kind of small at that point, right? It was just this little apartment and yeah, walk, walking the dog to the donut shop. Yeah. He had a really simple life. Um, I mean, he seemed happy but you know i i he was writing every day um but as far as i knew like he hadn't gotten anything made in a really yeah. long time lots of people in la are writing every day yes <laughs> which you know at the time i didn't now i know that this is like a very classic hollywood life <laughs> but i think at the time as you know a 20 something who you know was just like bursting with energy to like enter the workforce i was like oh seems like he doesn't have a whole lot going on <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah now you're like oh uncle galen maybe uh my future um, yeah yeah so w what was it like then finding out that he had written screenplays like how did you actually did they just hand you like an unmarked folder like was it like that yeah it was like this cardboard box um that i guess when they were cleaning out his house um they brought back to oakland and they didn't really know what to do with it so it had just been sitting at my papa's house yeah. and so they were like, oh, we weren't sure what to do with the, these. Like, do, do you want to look at them? I know you've, like, 
become more interested in writing lately. We thought maybe you'd be interested in them. And I mean, I had no, I knew of one screenplay he had written, which was um, one we mentioned in the show called Commercial Movie. It was like this comedic satire. Um, but other than that, I had no idea that he had, I mean, it was a pile of like seven screenplays. Oh, wow. And are they like exactly what I'm imagining? Like they're kind of um, not stapled, but they're sort of like bound together. They're in like courier. Everything's in like all oh, caps. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They're um, they have beige covers. Yeah, everything's in a courier font. Every cover um, page had like an agency name on them with the agency like contact mm. info. Um, yeah, no, it was. Uh, uh, I actually showed them to. Um, a a colleague of his and he was able to say like oh yeah these were definitely written in like the the 90s i can tell like with the typewriter you know there was some like apparently it was a very classic classically formatted script so when did you discover the screenplay crazy six which is kind of really is set in oakland chinatown it is yeah so the original screenplay for crazy six was called it's all in the game um, and that was the first script I decided to start reading. I kind of flipped through all of them. Um, but that one caught my eye because that one, as I talk about on the show, had this had a second cover page, unlike the others. And it said something like the incidents and characters uh, of this story are real. Their names have been changed to protect the guilty. And I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, how could you not read that one? <laughs> oh, yeah. And what's in there? What's in there? So I started reading it. It was about this Chinese American guy in his 30s named Billy. He was this kind of coiffed, but like edgy, uh, handsome man who, um, found himself and found himself in like the traps of addiction. He was specifically addicted to crack cocaine. And um what he was known for is he was really good at carrying out drug robberies. And so he essentially worked with this this gangster, this gang leader who you get the sense um this main character does not really fully trust, but you know, he's known to carry out these drug heists, so so that's what he gets hired for. Mm. And so his goal in the film is, I'm going to make, do this one last big job, and I'm going to take all the money, and I'm going to get clean, and I'm going to move away and totally start over. Oh, my gosh. But, I mean, the Galen that you knew how, how what would his relationship have been to that that set of things right i mean you knew a guy who was not living that life at all did you immediately think like oh this is based on my uncle's life well i did think okay this guy is um a great fighter he's a very skilled fighter he can like take down you know a whole room full of men at once you know he's uh He's very slick and handsome and strong. And I was like, okay, this is, I mean, knowing my uncle, this is probably the kind of guy my uncle would have aspired to be, like the Mm. kind of hero I'm sure he wanted to be. Um, So I think that was kind of the only main connection I drew. But then there was this flashback scene in the the script. and, And this is kind of where I really started asking questions because the main character... Um, his father died when he was seven, and my uncle was seven when my grandfather died. And he writes about um, this kind of traumatic experience at the funeral, and it was an open casket funeral. And that was exactly how my mom described mm. their father's funeral. 
And he was supposed to go up and put a dime, right? Yes, yes. Either on his chest or his mouth. Yeah. Um, and my aunt told me how, yeah, they. she has this memory of him and my uncle walking up to the casket. And she said, like, I swear to God, he moved. Mm. My, their father moved. And I think it was um, something that really rocked my uncle and, and all of the children. So now you've started to see, like, oh, well, he used pieces of his life in this screenplay. At what point did you realize that he actually was kind of in that life? Like, he was in the gangs of Chinatown? It wasn't until I started talking to my uncle's friends, my uncle's best friends, um, who were around him at this time. Mm -hmm. Um, And they... Uh, a couple of them actually were in the gang with my uncle. So they let me know like, oh, yes, he essentially joined this gang in Oakland. Um, and eventually I learned, you know, that he, you know, would would carry out these kind of extortion plots, which he, he later ended up getting caught for. Um, and yeah, his friends essentially started to verify a lot of a lot of the details that were in the script. Wow. I mean, how did you feel about that? I mean, it was like half exciting to see, you know, as a fellow creative person, I was just blown away that my uncle could really have lived these experiences and then later on in his life translated it into this creative piece of work. Um, So I think I was half inspired by it. Um, And then also, I guess, kind of half scared for him on his behalf, like the child version of him and the teenager mm. once I started to kind of learn the what it was like um, for young boys in both Oakland and San Francisco Chinatown and the kind of obstacles they were up against. And and it made me really start to understand why my uncle would have joined the gang and what he got out of it. Yeah. We're going to talk more about life in Oakland and San Francisco, Chinatown, late 60s, early 70s. We're talking with Maya Lynn Sugarman, host and executive producer of the podcast Magnificent Jerk. It follows the life of her uncle uh, from his time in a gang to his second act as a Hollywood screenwriter. I'd love to hear from you. I mean, did you grow up in one of the Bay Area's Chinatown communities? What are your memories uh, from this period of time? You can email us forum at kqed.org. You can find us on our social channels, digital community on the Discord, or you can call us 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Maya Lynn Sugarman, host and executive producer of the podcast Magnificent Jerk. Now, this story of Magnificent Jerk is kind of rooted in Oakland's Chinatown and follows the life of her uncle from his time as a gang member in the late 60s, early 70s to his second act as a Hollywood screenwriter. And we want to kind of dig in to what life was like uh, in the Chinatowns of that era. I want to add to our discussion William G. Wong, who's a journalist and author of a forthcoming book called Sons of Chinatown, a memoir rooted in China and America. Welcome, William. Thank you. And we also want to add in Brian Wong, who was actually Galen uh, Yen's uh, friend from childhood, uh, Maya Lin's um, uncle's friend. Welcome, Brian. Thank you for having me. Um, William, so I was reading some of the literature from the Asian American movement in the late 1960s, and they're writing these kind of passionate papers, you know, one of which argues, you know, Chinatown is unquestionably a ghetto in every sense of the word. Can you fill us in on kind of the conditions that would lead kind of a young student radical to, to write something like that in the late 60s? Well, can we go back even further? Because, yeah, sure. Uh, the, the context of Maya's story, which is an amazing story, and she tells it so well, is that um, the first Chinese came over during the gold rush. And mm-hmm. uh, from that point on, it was a very difficult experience for those Chinese migrants. And then in 1882, the Congress passes the Chinese Exclusion Act and Chinatowns became a refuge uh, for Chinese living in America at the time. And San Francisco being the uh, biggest and first Chinatown uh, really developed a community all unto itself with, uh, and it was a patriarchy with uh, many different associations uh, led by um, the elders, and among those organizations were Tongs, which did get into uh, criminal activity, and they were kind of the gangs of the elders, if you will, mm. along with some very legitimate businessmen, and there was overlap. Um, but that was operating all within a uh, very well-developed community, and Oakland got... Um, uh, Oakland was kind of the little brother to San Francisco Chinatown and had all of these um, organizations that ran Chinatown uh, surrounded by white Oakland and white San Francisco. Mm. So during the, um, when I was growing up in Chinatown in the 40s and 50s, um, the, you know, I was generally aware that there were tongs and other associations, but never the kind of youth gangs that developed uh, in the 60s. And what happened in 1965 was uh, Congress passed a um, yeah, Heart Seller Act, yeah, that allowed many more immigrants from Asia and Latin America to come. So what happened at, at right after that in the late 60s, um, you know, young men came over from Hong Kong and other parts of China and um, 
their familiarity, of course, of, uh, with America was very slim, and maybe their language wasn't so good. So they came and there became sort of intra-Chinese clashes uh, between the new immigrants, young men, and some of the American-born. Mm -hmm. So within a Chinatown setting, uh, there became a, um, you know, a territorial dispute between the fresh off the boats, the FOBs, and the ABCs, the American-born. And even among both groups, there was a feeling of not really belonging except mm. in Chinatown. So there were all these conditions of not feeling a part of America, and especially for the uh, for the uh, new immigrants. And they they formed into groups and gangs for comfort um, and for companionship. And um, some of them got into um, bad stuff. Yeah. You know, my, and it's in that exact context. Um, that was a, a beautiful pocket history, William. Thank you for that. Um, it was in that context that your uncle started to gravitate towards a particular gang, right? Yes. Yeah. It was known as the Soy Sing, um, which, which was based in Oakland, Chinatown, and had been started by a former watching member who, who came across um, the Bay to start a new gang. Oh, wow. And as you started to read about that gang, like, what did you find? Um, I found that, you know, right as my uncle joined, um, it was kind of the start of what is now kind of referred to as the gang wars. So essentially what happened is a lot of infighting started to ensue between a lot of these different gangs, chapters within the gangs. Um, and it, from what I understand, it became really violent. There, um, there were about 19 murders, as far as I know, mm -hmm. during that time, um, several of which are still unsolved to this day. You know, Brian Wong, I mean, you were a young kid during this time. I mean, how did you and Galen kind of encounter this history? Like, how did you encounter these these groups in, in real time? Well, my father owned a service station in uh, Oakland, Chinatown. Mm -hmm. And I we happened to meet. I did not know Galen, but he was with his uh, other friends, the Sui Singh mm -hmm. guys, and they were... I uh, doing some mischief at a service station across the way and you know they were making noise and uh, vandalizing things and we crossed the street we you know chased them away hmm. the following day they came as a gang more of them and they're saying well you know what are you doing why do you, you know why are you telling us what to do this is our you know this is our territory to which, uh, no, that's you know, that's not going to be the case right there. If you guys want to fight, you know, I, I'm not afraid of this. Uh, mm. But you know, nothing, nothing happened then. They they left, and being in Chinatown, everyone for lunch, you know, you go to the local Chinese restaurants, and and what uh, we also would go to a place, Broadway Bowl. Yeah, that wow. was an old bowling alley there. I don't know if you're from. It's yeah. all. It's been knocked down, but that was the local hangout for a lot of Asians. You know, we didn't bowl or 
they had a pool hall and everything, but it was kind of like a place to be to see people mm -hmm. and seeing Galen, you know, back and forth, he'll see me, but um, he's, he's not a type of person that has hostility. At least when I see him, you know, mm -hmm. he's, you know, he's, he's just everything is matter of fact, which, you know, I like a person that's matter of fact. You know, I don't like all that shielding and uh, let's pretend uh, this and pretend that, you know, he was, he was pretty down to earth with me, and um, he worked at a service station in Oakland Chinatown as well. And his station closed at ten, and mine closed at eleven. Mm. So after he closed the station, he'd come, come hang over out with and you. hang out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we talk right there. And said, yeah. "Yeah, we're okay. We have, we have more in common. You know, I belong to a different gang, and he mm. belonged to a, his gang, but that did not affect." You know, mm. uh, any of this stuff right here, here, you know, you can't go to this and that. But um, how did he's, you, he's, can I, Brian, can I ask you a yeah. question? I mean, how did you see, how did you see violence as part of your life? I mean, was it something, I mean, I know there's something that, you know, Maya really struggles with in the, in the podcast is, you know, how to make sense of, you know, the, what people are joining these things because they want to belong. People are joining these things because they've been excluded from a lot of mainstream society. But there's also this undercurrent of violence that's kind of pulsing through both inside gangs, between gangs, and between the gangs, and like kind of the city at large. Um, you know, I guess that could be almost like it goes back to the family. Hmm. In a family, there's the favorite child, and then there's the unfavored child. Hmm. And... In my case, you know, my family was, you know, they, I wasn't, I wasn't the favorite child. Mm -hmm. So you can feel this kind of discrimination, if you will, you know, mm -hmm. uh, at dinner time, for example, uh, let's say if they have uh, a chicken that's being served, um, the favorite child, the dad and the mom, they all get the good pieces and I'm left with the back. <laughs> you know, so this one, so it's, I think in, mm -hmm. in some ways when we got together in Chinatown, it's kind of a way of protecting you from I'm taking the thigh this time. Bullies. Yeah. 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 Well, <laughs> yeah. this one right here. Well, it's, it's kind of protecting you from what litter you have growing up in Chinatown. We didn't have a lot, but we had a sense of community as, yeah. as friends and there sometimes showing hostility is, a way of keeping the other people from attacking you. Yeah. So yeah, I didn't I didn't see it as anything wrong. I thought it was just all part of hmm. it's all part of growing up. There's there's a pecking order that I learned early in life. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. To, so it's you know, I didn't see it as bad. I just thought that's just that's just you how know, that's is. everyday life. Yeah. You know, Maya, um I Here's a, something that I want to talk about. I mean, you, you, as you start to dig into this history, you start to realize like, oh my gosh, my uncle was really involved in, in actual crime life. You know, he, of course, there's many other aspects, you know, as we've been, as we've been hearing, but by the early 1970s, you know, there is a Oakland Tribune. I mean, we're talking page one headline, right? October 16th, 1972, five extortion suspects seized here. And one of them is your uncle. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's so complicated um, reading reading that story. And like mm-hmm. once I learned a little bit more, I actually, you know, spoke to the the kid that my uncle was attempting to extort. Um, and it's so complicated because, you know, I, I think my uncle was actually recorded. The there, mm-hmm. police were actually there that night wiretapping the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in the recordings, the transcripts of the recordings, it is clear to me that, like, yes, my uncle was bullying this family and this family clearly felt scared. Um, but it also is really heartbreaking to see. I mean, in that article, they published my family's home address, um, which I just was like, especially being a member of the media myself, I was like, God, I can't believe um you know, that yeah. would happen. That's crazy to me. Um, so I don't know. It's really it's really complicated. Yeah. Uh, William uh, G. Wong, I, when we talk about this violence and these gangs, it did kind of, there, it was an era of time that did kind of come to a close, right? And one of our listeners um, writes into to remember a, a moment in this time. Jane writes, I remember when there was a shooting at the Golden Dragon restaurant in San Francisco in the mid-70s, I think. My family lived in Sausalito, would go there for dinner. We had dinner there at some point after the shooting. I was a child and remember seeing bullet holes in the wall panels, and it felt very tense. This Was that moment kind of marking an, an end of this kind of period? I'm not sure it was the end, but um, I happened to be a reporter in San Francisco Bureau of the Wall Street Journal, national newspaper that could care less about local crime stories. But when the story broke in the Labor Day weekend of 1977, it was a very explosive uh, situation in San Francisco. Um and I couldn't write about it for the Wall Street Journal as a news story, but I decided to uh, go to my bureau chief and said, hey, I'd like to do something about this, but I wanted to put a larger um, yeah. historical and political context to it. Um, and in learning about it and doing some reporting on it, it turned out that it was a two gangs, the um, I think it was the Watching and the Joe Boys who were in rivalry. And the Golden Dragon restaurant was a very popular place for both tourists as well as, uh, you know, Chinatown folks. Um, and it turned out that, uh, you know, it was just a, a horrible situation for San Francisco's mm-hmm. image and for Chinatown's reputation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but it became big national news in part uh, some of the observers told me that because some white people were either killed mm. or injured because there were tourists in there mm. and ironically none of the gang members on either side were uh, were wounded or or hurt um wow. so i'm not sure it was the end of the violence but it certainly got um a lot of attention and from that uh, therefore, you know, officials mm-hmm. in uh, San Francisco and other places were paying a lot more attention mm-hmm. uh, to the gang situation. Yeah. You know, Maya Lynn Sugarman, um, given this context, it really does feel like your uncle's screenplay, for all of its kind of like dramatic heightening, 
really kind of was in a real attempt to reckon with a life that was kind of outside the model minority idea, kind of on the margin of society, kind of living through you know, both difficult socioeconomic and, and just social times. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, there's actually a, a, a scene where his character, Billy, kind of talks about this. Um, it's a line like something like, I will always be seen as a Chinese man. Mm. Um, and, you know, kind of a theme I think I've saw throughout his script, but also actually I heard a lot from his friends is like this idea of anger. Mm. Um, and... And it, I guess it really breaks my heart because I think there was a lot of anger for the, you know, the ways in which um, these communities were ignored. Mm-hmm. And I think the sad thing is a lot of that anger ended up getting turned um, mm-hmm. onto each other within mm-hmm. the community. Yeah. You know, Brian Wong, before we let you go, um, how did your life end up like kind of coming out of this period? What, what ended up happening? Um. I ended up starting, I started working for a communication company. It was called Pacific Telephone. (laughs) Um, I ended up working for them for 37 years. I was an administrator. Who would think that somebody with just a high school education coming out of (laughs) Chinatown with little support from inside or outside that I would, I would, you know, get this far. It, It surprised me, but. If anything, I learned in Chinatown is perseverance. Mm. After 37 years with AT&T, I now work for the California Highway Patrol. (laughs) I've been doing that for 14 years now. Wow. Wow. Uh, Obviously, uh, resilience and also uh, hard work for sure. Thanks so much for... Yeah. It's it's not really hard work. It's uh, It's just like what you do. You get up every day and you... I don't complain. Uh, We just continue if you just continue i think that we would do better but the, maybe perhaps the world versus everybody i want what you want instead of stealing the other person go make your own path yeah hey brian wong thanks so much for joining us uh that is mylon sugarman's uncle's friend um her uncle of course galen Wen, the kind of key motivating uh, character in the podcast that she produced, Magnificent Jerk. We're also joined by William G. Wong, a journalist and author of a forthcoming book, Sons of Chinatown, a memoir rooted in China and America. Love to hear from you if you grew up in one of the Bay Area's Chinatown communities. You know, what do you remember from this period? How has life changed? You know, maybe you've encountered a family story that's really changed your perspective like did for Maya. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels or give us a call, 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the podcast Magnificent Jerk, which is rooted in Oakland's Chinatown and follows the life of Galen Wen from his time in a gang as a young man to his second act as a Hollywood screenwriter. Joined by host and executive producer of the podcast, also the niece of Galen, Maya Lynn Sugarman. Also joined by William G. Wong, a journalist and author of Sons of Chinatown, a memoir rooted in China and America to be published in, in 2024. And earlier we were joined by Brian Wong, one of Galen friends um the your, this story is kind of amazing because it, it has so many different um eras maya um there's sort of this youth gang era which galen kind of emerges out of into actually a life of of drug addiction right i mean even worked um as a as a pimp during this era and i just you know that must have been a difficult thing for you and kind of the family to process like how did you come to terms with that part of his life yeah i think um that was a that was really difficult to learn and you know at the time um I think what I worried about most was just really hoping and wanting to ensure that my uncle treated um, whoever he worked with well at the at the very, you know. Um, and so as far as I know, you know, I, I didn't find any stories like that. But, um, you know, I think uh, he, as far as I understand it, he... Um, you know, started, I mean, at the time, I think cocaine was pretty popular <laughs> from from what I understand in the 80s, you know. Um, but I think it eventually, uh, from my understanding, graduated into um, smoking, smoking crack cocaine, yeah. um, which I, I learned from from his friends that that actually that can be even more feel even more addicting mm-hmm. um there's kind of like this gamble where you're at least as it was explained to me where you're not sure if you're going to get that i don't know like i think it was called like a free base orgasm as uh, his friends mm-hmm. have described mm-hmm. it to me and because of that gamble it actually makes it more addictive um mm-hmm. because you're kind of always chasing that high and so from my understanding that is um where my uncle found himself really wow. chasing chasing that high which in his screenplay it's all in the game as he finds himself there he falls in love with uh, or the main character falls in love with um a filipina lounge singer right i mean yes. that's part of his part of the story and you at a certain point got access to galen's email even right and you yes. were able well tell us that story Yes, I um, I ended up getting access to his online passwords. And, you know, it took me it took me a couple months to actually bring myself to even log into his accounts because it just felt I don't know, it, it felt strange. It felt 
like maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Um, but I had really hit a wall in my reporting, um, especially like that those 12 years after um, he got out of prison were just like blank. Like I kind of had already filled in at that point um, the time before and the time after once he went to Hollywood. But that middle part, I just had no idea what was going on in his life and, and how he ultimately mm. um, got driven to to go to Hollywood. Um, so yeah, I, I logged into his emails, um, found some unread emails, um, from a woman who seemed to, to this day, not, or to the day at the time, not even know that my uncle had, had passed away. Um, but what I noticed in particular was that she shared the same name as as the, the woman in the screenplay. As the woman in the screenplay. And the in the podcast we refer to her as Anna. Um so so yeah, I I I reached out to her. Oh my gosh. What was that conversation like? Um Anna is incredible. She um she was so gracious and so kind and she told me so much about her own life. Um, which I was really thankful to get to learn. Mm -hmm. Um, And she kind of, yeah, confirmed a lot of kind of the more emotional beats of the story, right? This idea that um, my uncle really truly had this desire to get clean and really did want to to leave and start over. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. As as we'll learn, yes. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So as you, as you, you know, figured out this history it's kind of fascinating because the idea of going to LA and like going to Hollywood in order to like get clean and like make it in the movie business like there's something that is like the most American dream kind of thought that I can possibly imagine you know that you're just gonna like get out of the game and you're gonna go to LA and you're gonna make it but then that kind of is what happens yeah, yeah, essentially. I mean, so as my uncle told it once in um, a profile that was written about him, essentially he was kind of at one of the lowest points of his life, his rock bottom. He was living at my papa's house and he just so happened to turn on the TV and General Hospital was on. And uh, coincidentally, during that time, the first ever Asian storyline was taking place on General Hospital. And not just that, the storyline had to do with, you know, I think gangs and um, extortion and um, Mm. essentially everything my uncle had just lived. Mm. And apparently his first thought was, I could do that. I lived that. So I I could easily do that. Mm. I mean, it just goes to show an epiphany can come from anything, right? I mean, that's like you're watching General Hospital, and that's where the epiphany uh, really comes. So he goes to Los Angeles, and he initially tries to become an actor, right? Yeah, yeah. So his first um, his first foray when he got there was, was acting. He started taking acting classes. He started auditioning. Um, he got his first role. Um, it was a TV miniseries starring Pierce Brosnan called Noble House. Mm. And he actually got to travel to Hong Kong um, to shoot to shoot this film. Um, so pretty incredible first role. Wow. So uh, once you've got to that point, I mean, just to skip ahead in his story a little bit, you know, he, he takes on more acting roles. He becomes like a sort of larger part of kind of the 
small but growing Asian American acting community. He starts to write on the side, and that's the era in which he he produces this screenplay. What happens once he's got that that screenplay? Like it does get made into a movie, but what happens in that process? So, from my understanding, he he wrote this script. Um, and I think the way I understand it happened back then and might still happen now is um, basically uh, production companies will uh, receive um, a bunch of scripts and will just read through them looking for what uh, makes sense as their next project. And so the production company that uh, happened to read It's All in the Game, the script we've been talking about, um, was a, a production company called Filmworks. And so they read my uncle's script and they thought, this is in our wheelhouse. We could we could totally make this script. It's very compelling. It feels very real. Um, and it's the kind of action movie that, that we like to make. Mm. And they did a great job of it, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is, right, we've spent the last 40 minutes talking about this real-life story that took place in the Bay Area yeah. about the Chinatown gangs. Um, the script did end up getting rewritten uh, a, a bit to fit their uh, their budget and the way in which, um, for, for many different reasons, the, the way in which they got films made. So instead of... The script taking place in Oakland, Chinatown. It took place in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, they uh, got rid of all of the Asian characters. Um, and it starred Burt Reynolds, Ice-T, Mario Van Peebles, and my uncle was played by Rob Lowe. That is amazing. <laughs> and instead of being called It's All in the Game, it gets called Crazy Six. Crazy Six, yes. And you... Dear listeners, can actually go watch this movie, right, on Amazon? Yes, yes. It's on Amazon. I think it's actually, you can watch it for free on YouTube as well. Got it. Um, and this movie is bad, just so people know, right? <laughs> I mean, this is a bad, bad movie. Um, but it does sort of bring your uncle's career to a kind of peak, right? I mean, he got a movie made in Hollywood. Yeah, it was his first and only feature film credit. Um, so, so at the same time, you know, it, uh, that was a real, that's a, in Hollywood, that's a really big deal. Not that many writers get that. Yeah. Um, we want to get to a caller, uh, come San Francisco. Um, Michael, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning. I'm really enjoying this drive into school. I'm a teacher at Francisco middle school there at the foot of Chinatown and, mm. North Beach. We've been there about 100 years, and uh, I've been there about 15 years, and I just wanted to give some props to a really phenomenal documentary called Chinatown Rising uh, by Harry Chuck. He's worked at Cameron House for many, many years, and his son, Josh. It is absolutely phenomenal, and I can say that because I've watched it seven times for my classes, mm. and uh, really, really outstanding about not just... Um, some of the some of the gang issues you're touching on with the watching and so on, but um, also San Francisco State 68 ethnic totally. studies in the school, um, language and and race and culture in San Francisco City Schools. Where I've been I've been a teacher almost 20 years and uh, really tremendous film Chinatown Rising. I highly recommend it. And uh, Josh and Harry are also doing lots of public engagements 
Um, I think they've done over 400 speaking engagements. Wow. Highly, highly recommended. And I'm yeah. really enjoying the story. Thanks so much. Michael, hey, thank you so much. I mean, if you watched it seven times and you're still playing it for the kids, uh, <laughs> must be good. Yeah. I second that, actually. Our whole yeah. production team watched that film multiple times. And actually, fun fact, my aunt and my mother are in an image used in the documentary. Um, one of them, I think, is holding a can. They're, they're collecting bail money for Huey Newton. Oh, wow. So were they part of... The- the kind of ethnic studies movement, either at Berkeley or SF State, or just like out in the community. They, um, my both my aunts and my mom went to SF State, and yeah, my um, my aunt oh. has told me stories of running from you know the cops on horseback through like residential streets of San Francisco during during the protests. So they got involved with like Third World Liberation Front, and they were they they were in it like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if I know what Third World Liberation Front is, but yes, they were very yeah. involved in um, the organizers of, yes, the, of yes. the big strike. Okay, SF State. okay. This is your next documentary. <laughs> yes, that's what this I'm, is. That's what I'm I have telling. a lot There's to learn. That um, SF State during that time. I mean, William G. Wong. I mean, I, one of the reasons I got interested in this is if you look into kind of the history of almost any uh, political leader, uh, Asian American political leader in the Bay of that kind of boomer generation. They went through, this was a part, they had a relationship to Third World Liberation Front or the Red Guard or different groups that were all kind of organizing around with, you know, different political um, stripes, but all kind of organizing around Asian American issues at the time. Yes, very much so. What's interesting is that um, I left uh, Oakland in 1964 and didn't get back until 1972, so... I personally was not around during the Mm. beginnings of the Asian American studies movement in the late 60s -hmm. that happened at Cal and San Francisco State in particular. Um, But since I've been a uh, print journalist and writing about um, Chinatown, Chinese America, Asian America, I certainly learned a lot Mm. and um, uh, simply was... You know, going back to the big picture, a lot of what we're talking about goes back to the Chinese and Asian communities in America being mm-hmm. officially discriminated against. And then the uh, aftermath of still having difficulties in uh, integrating and being accepted mm-hmm. for who we are as opposed to forever foreigners. Mm-hmm. I also want to, um, on this historical uh, document kind of world, I got to recommend for people who are interested in this, search Pam Tao, T-A-U, Lee, oral history. Um, it has an amazing oral history featuring Jean Kwan, featuring um, life in Chinatown among student radicals. It's so compelling. Get, check that out. Um, another listener writes in to say, in grade school, I had an assignment to do a report on my family's history. And through the project, I learned a lot about my grandparents' lives. But I still want to learn more. I wish I could speak better Cantonese to ask my grandmother questions while she's still here, but she also has memory issues. The show's really inspiring and reminding me that knowing family history is worth pursuing. There's that layer of it, Maya, which I think is really beautiful and I think almost all of us kind of connect to. But, you know, like even in my own family, when I've looked into, say, my great-grandmother, you might find that there was another marriage in there you didn't know about or something, right? There are things that we find out about our family histories that are really complicated, not just for those of us who want to do the searching, but maybe for those who didn't want the search to happen at all. So when you brought back this story to your aunts, what, what did they say? 
it was very scary um, to, you know, and I think the layer that made it more scary, right, was the fact that this this was going to be published. You know, I think that that really added a lot more emotional pressure for me. Um, but, you know, I think that I guess this doesn't really answer your question, but, you know, I part of the reason why. I think I want to know these things, even if they're thought of as secrets or bad things that happened in our family's past. Um, I don't know. It makes me feel better, I guess, about my own life, you know, that we all make <laughs> mistakes and our families don't have to pretend like everything was perfect. Um, and so I think that is kind of like why I set out to do this. Um, but I understand why for my aunts it was really scary for them before this came out because mm -hmm. you know who knows how um people could react to it especially you know they came from a time where the violence that was happening there um was not seen as okay right was was kind of attached to the chinatown community as mm -hmm. this is a reason you know why um we should be you know white people should be hesitant to mm -hmm. to to um to, to allow this um, community right. to, you know, live outside of the, the grounds of the bounds of Chinatown, for example. Yeah. Um, so I understand their fear. Um, and I think that was really hard for me to feel like I was in a way kind of challenging that. And how about how did this complicate your sense of like an ancestor? Right. I mean, I think people like to have a very kind of shiny sense of oh, my ancestors they've given me this strength they've given me all these things but what if you find out something about your ancestor that maybe you don't want to find in yourself you know yeah i don't know i think i feel like i know my uncle better now because i understand all of the things maybe he would have probably not wanted to tell me but i feel mm -hmm. like i understand him better and i understand the journey he made i mean now you know if i if i it makes me bummed out that back when I was 22, you know, I was sitting in his apartment being like, oh, this guy's living a pretty simple life. Doesn't yeah. seem Old like uncle. much is happening here. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I mean, now when I think about it, I'm like, oh, my God. Wow. I mean, he completely changed his circumstances. It's incredible. I yeah. wish I had known that at the time. Amazing. We have been talking about the podcast Magnificent Jerk by Maya Lynn Sugarman ho with host and executive producer of the podcast. Maya, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Also joined by William G. Wong, a journalist and author of Sons of Chinatown, a memoir rooted in China and America. And Brian Wong joined us earlier, who is one of her uncle's friends. The 9 o'clock hour is produced by Blanca Torres and Grace Wan. Our intern is Emiko Oda, Marlena Jackson Rotondo, Marnet Federis, and Jennifer Ng, our engagement producers. Francesca Fenzi is our digital community producer and produced this show. Judy Campbell is lead producer. Danny Bringer and Christopher Beale, our engineers. Vice President of News is Ethan Tovin Lindy. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. A listener on Discord writes, I binge listened and loved everything about this podcast, Magnificent Jerk. It told city history, family history, crime, love. I've recommended this podcast to so many friends. Enjoy it. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.